Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Hold the Line. So, I've got a question from Matthew, which I'm going to start with today. He said, that a very interesting podcast would be you talking about what a typical training timeline would look like for you with a retriever puppy or HPR puppy up to a year old or so. For example, what behaviors are you training and in what order and what major things do you want to have accomplished by what ages? What is making me think of this is your most recent podcast caught me off guard when you mentioned that you really want a dog to go through the steady course when they're young. From my US viewpoint, I'm not even thinking about steadying until 18 months or two years, and so you could easily miss that kind of thing until it's later than optimal. So I thought this was a really important thing to talk a little bit about. I think this is a really important fundamental concept and a difference between traditional training and force-free training. So if we're going to train a dog in a traditional way, you probably, you know, most people are going to approach it by, um, at least in, in North America, letting the dog get really onto game, really into game and really thinking that, that is the most reinforcing thing imaginable and possible. And then when they've decided that they've built that drive enough and the dog is into it enough, then they're going to produce the e-collar and they're going to get the control in. And they're going to do that with whatever you know, whatever they need to do with that e-collar. Now, force-free trainers, we're not going to do that and we're not going to use the e-collar. So how are we going to approach this? So we are going to approach this in a different way. We have to firstly make sure that we are developing a reinforcer that we can use later on and that we can um, produce in the presence of game, which the dog is going to find sufficiently reinforcing to be able to accept in that context. So I know this this at first can sound really difficult for people to get their head around, particularly if they've never tried it before. If you talk to someone who who has experience of a very driven um, dog, very into hunting, and you talk about teaching the dog to want to get a ball or get a flirt pole or get a tuggy or get food instead of the game these people find it really difficult to believe or imagine that this can be possible. But it is. You just have to develop it from a very young age and build on it from a very young age. And dogs may not bring all of this to the table. Some of them might really be into it naturally from a very young age, and some of them might need it to be nurtured and developed gradually. Um, I mean, the two... HBRs that I have at the moment are an example of that. So you've got 
Ren, my GSP, who from the very beginning, from the age of eight weeks, was really into Tuggy and everything to do with playing Tug. And I could really kind of move on with that material really quickly. By the way, I couldn't move on with anything involving food because she didn't have she didn't have hardly any food motivation. So that side of things was really difficult. But the toy side of things was really good. And that was just something that she brought to the table kind of genetically and it was just there and that that's kind of still there today and it's great so um where where i am with ren at the moment is we're working on we're working on watching a rabbit flush and then being able to turn to me and get a reinforcer from me so what i do at the moment is there's a place or a few places that i use which tend to have rabbits hiding in clumps of bushes and i will usually either have Ren on a long line or I will wait until Ren goes on point and then I will kind of walk up to her while she's on point and quietly slip the long line, clip the long line onto her harness. So then I will usually get Moy, my Labrador, to flush the rabbit out. And the reason I do that is I think that getting the dog to flush and then be steady is a step further along from getting the dog to just be steady. Because if you think about what is involved in asking a dog to flush and be steady, you've got to get the dog to, to go get it and then to show control. And that's harder than just being just show control when the thing runs. You know, I think, I think flush and then show control is like go and stop. <laughs> Whereas just showing control when something flushes is just stop. So I always start with, just stop first so i can get the another dog to do the flushing for me then that's um something that i'll do so moi then will flush the bunny and the great thing about where i'm doing this is that there's very little open ground because what i want to avoid at the stage is the bunny running for an extended period of time in open view because that's just really tempting so well if we can kind of engineer the situation where we get a flash of bunny that's perfect. So a flash of bunny between one bush and another, and it's gone. That that is that is ideal. So we get the flash of bunny, and then my goal is not even to get steadiness at first. It's to get the dog wanting to play with me, the dog wanting to engage with me, dog wanting my reinforcer. So the dog sees the game and then wants my reinforcer. Because once you've got that, and once you've established that as a pattern, um, the bunny runs, and then you turn to your person. You've got like the hardest work done there. So it's not, you know, it's, from that point, it's easy to just get your your sit, your steadiness, your stand if you want to stand and you're in North America. That's that's easy. So, um, yeah, so you see the thing and then you you expect a reinforcer from your person. And the reinforcer can be any number of things depending on what the dog values. So some dogs might want a ball to be thrown. And that can be a little tricky sometimes because you have to allow the dog the freedom to run after the ball and hope they're not going to run after where the rabbit was um you've got the tuggy you've got you've got a flirt pole so it is possible there are some flirt poles which i've got one um which are quite short and relatively portable so you can sort of stuff them in the back of your game pouch and have your flirt pole there at the ready um so and there is food as well so some dogs will will like food. I tend to prefer using a toy if I can use a toy because I feel that it's if we're exchanging a chase on a bunny for something else, 
that it's kind of easier in terms of training to exchange a chase on a bunny for a chase on a flirt pole for me than it is to exchange a chase on a, on a bunny for a spoon of pate. Do you know, it's in terms of the where the dog is at emotionally in that moment and what they're expecting in that moment. It's easier for me to substitute the flirt pole or a ball or something than it is a blob of food. <laughs> um, so, but there are dogs that, that the toys just don't work for, but I would persevere a lot before concluding that that is the case. So that brings me on to the other subject, which is Rosh, my Vimerana, who is six months now. She did not come with much interest in playing toys. And um, we tried various things. And by not much interest, I mean, literally one or two seconds of engaging with a toy. You know, just a micro engagement before Bert's going to ignore it. And I brought a the flirt pole out to the field. I brought uh, Ren's flirt pole out to the field to see if I could get some kind of interest in it from Rosh. And she was not at all interested in it. I was waving it around on the ground. She was like, what are you doing? I'm just going to go and sniff this dandelion. She just showed zero interest in it. And so I kind of put it all away for a bit and I was mulling it over and I was thinking, I've been thinking over it for the past few days. And one of the things that I've noticed with Rosh is that one of her most favorite things is what I call defluffing stuff. So she will get like vet bed and uh, anything fluffy, basically, and she will just defluff it. So by that, I mean, she will use her front teeth, upper and lower incisors, to strip the fluff off the vet bed or the the bed or whatever it is. And it's really annoying, frankly. It's just really annoying. <laughs> um, so... There have been situations I've been like pulling fluff out of her mouth. <laughs> um, so anyway, after I just got through the fact that I just found this really annoying, I was starting to think, well, what can I think about this and what can I, what conclusion can I draw from this? So I got the biggest, fluffiest um, tug toy thing that I possibly could. And I got it on the end of a chaser. Um, so actually, it's a sheep wool fluffy tuggy toy and it's made by tug enough if people have heard of tug enough and so it's on the it's on a chaser ribbon thing and it's a it's a kind of a sheep wool fluffy thing it looks it's ginormous it looks like a a massive bottle cleaner <laughs> it's very fluffy and she loves it she absolutely loves it she loves to pounce on it and then attempt to strip some fluff out of it and Every session she does manage to strip a bit of fluff out of it, so at some point it's going to end up bald. But the fact is that I've got her playing tug, and I've got her wanting this thing, and I've got her interacting with it, and I can finally use this and move ahead with with the training when it comes to toys and stuff, which is the material that I cover on my steady course, which you can get from my website, by the way, forcefreegundog.com. So what I'm trying to say there is that Rosh is an example of a dog who did not come with much natural interest in playing tug or in toys. And it would have been really easy for me just to go, right, well, she's just not a toy dog. She's going to be a food dog. And we're just going to stick to the food sort of stuff and just not bother using toys. But I think you've got to look at with the dog what part of the predatory sequence they enjoy most and analyze that and think about how you can provide the dog with that. So what I've noticed with Ren is that she most values, that's my GSP, she most values the getting it um, part of the predatory sequence. So once she's got the item, she actually doesn't really do much with it. She kind of holds it and is happy with herself a little bit. And she kind of like 
toddles left and right a little bit holding it and then she'll put it down again because she wants me to whip it away so that she can have another rep so she doesn't really want to you know do anything after that um and for her the the chase and the attempt to get it is actually more reinforcing than than actually getting it so what do i mean by that i mean that if i don't let her get it but i let her chase it in itself that is reinforcing. So it's not just, do I get the thing? Do I have the thing in my mouth? It's the chase that she finds reinforcing. Clearly, the bit of the predatory sequence that Roche finds most reinforcing is kind of what happens after you get the dead animal, as it were. It's kind of the the pulling apart and dissecting of the prey. (laughs) And that's why we get all this defluffing stuff happening. So once I'd kind of managed to get over my annoyance and recognize that then i was able to find something which could enable her to 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 do that behavior and so then we can pull it into our tuggy stuff and flirt pole stuff and use it so anyway i'm just kind of waffling now but i think the thing i'm trying to say is you got to identify which bit of the predatory sequence your dog finds reinforcing when you are doing these kind of tuggy games and make sure that 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 is the bit that you are using and also that you're aware that that is the reinforcer. And so any sort of um, loop of reps that you have is taking that into consideration. So to get back to the subject that Matthew originally brought up, which is the, the idea of doing the steadiness training before we go into contact with game and rather than letting the dog decide to get crazy about hunting before we introduce any steadiness, when you go out there deliberately to seek out contact with game in some way, whatever that is, whether it's using birds and launchers, whether it's going somewhere where you know that there are going to be birds and you're going to have your dog on a long line, if you're going to a rabbit pen to work on steadiness, you know, whenever you go out there into the world to deliberately put your dog into contact with game for the first time, you need to have a reinforcer that you are pretty sure is going to work in that situation because you've got no way to train the dog if you don't have a reinforcer which is going to be a reinforcer and function as a reinforcer in that context and in that situation. So you then would have to return to the drawing board and think a little bit more about what you're going to use in that situation. Because this is the situation where a traditional trainer would pull out aversives and would use aversives to overcome that desire to get the bunny or bird or whatever. So if we're not going to do that, we got to have reinforcers that function in that situation. And we need to be building those reinforcers way before we go into contact with game. So this is why, you know, we have an aviary of quail outside, which Ren uses a lot. And we have launchers and, you know, we can do all of that with Ren. But Rush, I just know that if we took Rush out with the quail she would just be wowed by the quail. She would have zero interest in anything that I have to offer at the moment. And it just wouldn't work. So I don't do it. I I don't use the quail. And sometimes it's a bit frustrating because I'm there like, wow, I wish we could use these birds with you, Rosh. But I know it's much better in the long run to just be patient and just wait until I feel that I have developed a reinforcer that could stand a chance of functioning as a reinforcer in that situation. So I hope that makes sense. Now, on the bigger subject of other behaviors and what stuff do I want to have a dog able to do by what age, I don't really have anything like that as far as 
by this age, a dog should be able to do this thing because dogs are all individuals and they all come with different strengths and different things they find difficult. And we got to kind of just work with where the dog is and where the dog is at rather than have this predefined list of stuff that we have to get the dog through. And it may be that some dogs accelerate way faster down one part of their training and maybe find another part of their training really difficult and really challenging. So some dogs, for example, might naturally come with a lot of hunting ability and they're great remote uh, sit whistle and steadiness and the hunting side of things seems to be going really, really well. The retrieving side of things, they're just really struggling with and they find that really difficult. So, you know, you got to kind of adjust up and down dependent on the individual dog and you can only move according to what the individual dog offers you. Like whatever whatever the behaviors are that you're working on, they'll always be like one step further on available to you from that point. And you kind of are only able to work a step further than where the dog is at once the dog is able to achieve the previous step. Does that make sense? So it's kind of determined by the dog, really. You can't have a sort of, you know, by eight months old, I want the dog to be able to do this drill, this drill, this drill, and able to do that, that, that. Um, I just think that's like a sausage machine. And um, I just wouldn't think of, of, of doing that. But I do have in my head, I guess, a rough sort of progression of things. But I don't have like an age by which point the dog should have progressed through them. Um, so I hope that makes sense. And I'd encourage you just to work with the dog that you have in front of you and with what that dog is able to do and where they are at. Hold the line. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. 
I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. So I had another email from someone called Mike who has a question about his Vimarana Ruby and I'm going to kind of summarize it. So basically Ruby has, she's quite a successful dog and she's had quite a lot of success in working tests it seems in particular and um, after lockdown, so obviously there was a bit of a break during COVID-19 and it seems that she didn't do much during that time. After COVID-19 and after lockdown, he noticed there was a kind of a, a deterioration in terms of her interest in um, training. So I'm just going to quote you this little bit. Mike said, um, when Gundel working tests recommenced this year, it was evident that Ruby had regressed. She seemed very disinterested and had lost all her enthusiasm and drive. I had much conflicting advice how to remediate and in the end felt that maybe I was training too much and she was getting bored. So decided to give her a break and then limit training to two or three sessions a week, interspersed with nice walks and lots of fun. I take her out with my wife's Springer several times a week and they just love it. This seemed to be working. So it seemed that he'd kind of, I think at this point he felt like maybe he was getting the better of it. Then he went out on a training session and the training session was very difficult, but Ruby performed brilliantly. So she was doing 200 yard blinds over distracting features um, with a dummy launcher as a distraction. She had a memory over high wall into dense cover. Blinds was shot into woodland. And he said she performed brilliantly with stylish, accurate retrieves and fantastic pace. So they stopped after four great exercises. Then they had a working test and the working test... Um, soon after that training session was very different. So he said that her first retrieve was a very simple scene with shot in openish woodland. She slowly ambled out, sniffing here and there, going off course, needed much handling, and we scored six out of 20, a dismal result. The next test was hunting on stubble. She did a really good job, ranged wide, covered the ground stylishly and with pace. After lunch, we had a simple split retrieve, again an open woodland. She made hard work of it and scored 12 out of 20. The final test was a long blind into water with shot through 10 foot high reeds. Quite a pleasing retrieve. 19 out of 20. And he says, so the issue seems that she has lost her mojo. She mostly looks disinterested and is not enjoying it at working tests. But in training with me, she's her usual brilliant self. I wondered if it's hot weather that does her in, but her hunting was fine. Is it the travelling or overnight stays? Is it nerves picked up from me? Is it unfamiliar ground? I'm at the end of my tether and really don't know which way to turn. So it's quite interesting. Um... I asked Mike if she was spayed and turns out that yes, she is spayed because one thought I have is whether she might be coming in season. But um, turns out she is spayed so that we can sort of rule that out. So one thought I had which came to mind was something which actually happened to me with my Slovakian roughhead pointer, Grey, who is now long deceased. So there was a time way back when, when Grey was a young dog and we were introducing her to Cold Game for the first time. And we got this, we had this pheasant 
Um, and we went out to this um, um, ground in the middle of nowhere to sort of do this. And we tried everything that we could think of to get her to interact with the game. We tried the clicker retrieve. We tried shaping the clicker retrieve with her standing on a lead and with the bird at our feet. And, you know, she was happy to sniff it or to put her nose down to it. But she didn't really want to do anything else beyond that. She didn't want to make any attempt to pick it up or open her mouth on it whatsoever. So we tried um, playing with it. We tried using it as a sort of toy, throwing it around. We had some, we had some stockings with us. So we put it in some stockings. We we did everything that we could think of to get her to want to pick up this bird. And eventually, we just concluded that maybe it just needs more time, more exposure. We need to come back and do the same thing with some other birds in future. So we decided we were going to end the session, feeling quite depressed and quite despondent about how it had gone. Um, and we decided because the bird was a bit mangled and we'd been throwing it around a bit that we were going to leave it there for the foxes. So my husband Adam picked the bird up and threw it as hard as he could possibly throw it across this marshland onto this little island, which was quite far away. And Grace saw this and she just leapt into the water. She swam across the water. She got out. She got the bird. She got back in the water. She came out and we did not get a retrieve to hand. <laughs> I, won't, I won't claim we got that, but she got out of the water and she brought it back to a few meters away. So um, we just stood there with our jaws kind of on the floor. And after we'd kind of celebrated a bit and um, sort of tried to puzzle out what the heck was going on, we again decided, right, okay, we actually have to go now. We have to finish <laughs> we have to finish the session. So again, um, Adam picked up the bird and he threw it again back where it was. And again, exactly the same thing happened. So Gray sort of leapt into the water, swam right across and got it and brought it back. So I don't know what, I don't know, this came to mind because the only thing that we could we could think of was that for some reason, when it was really simple and it was really easy and the task was just so obvious, she there was nothing in it that was inherently interesting about it for her or challenging. And when it was difficult and complicated and a struggle, she she suddenly really wanted to do it. So there's something about the challenge level of the task in itself which was reinforcing. Now, I can't claim to have all this figured out in terms of learning theory or in terms of just what the heck was going on in Gray's brain at this time. But, you know, it would often be the case that when something was out of reach, when something was difficult, when something was a struggle to, to do, that's when she would find that she really wanted to, to do it. Um, so, I don't know, that kind of made me think about this email Mike that you sent because it did seem that it was the really easy simple retrieves that your dog showed not much interest in so the simple scene was shot in openish wood and then you had another simple split retrieve again an open woodland which she made hard work of and yet the more difficult things so the long blind into water was shot she did well um, and the hunting where she's able to show initiative and go and look for things she did well as well so it seems it seems a bit similar. I think that's why it made me think of this situation that we had with Grey. So there is something about part of the reinforcer being the task itself for our dogs and not just the reinforcement that we provide for them completing the task. But there's going to be something within the task itself, particularly if we're doing gun dog work, which they are bred to enjoy then there's going to be something within that which is reinforcing for them too. Another thought that I had about this is that not all dogs are a sort of test dog. Some dogs do much better 
at trials or shooting or in quote unquote real work than in working tests. And a dog which is a great working test dog is often not a great field trial dog and vice versa. So it may be that your dog is a trial dog rather than a test dog. And then my final thought is about the retrieve in the first place and how you trained that. Because I do think that if you train the retrieve using the clicker retrieve method, that you end up most of the time with a really stylish, enthusiastic retrieve to hand because it breaks down the retrieve into its component parts and teaches the dog all of those little bits separately before it puts it together into a coherent whole. So you end up with a dog which has a history of associating the retrieve with something really, really amazingly super reinforcing from you, usually food. So in those situations, you end up with a dog which really wants to do the retrieve, no matter how simple it is, because the reinforcer they're going to get is going to make it worth their while to do that retrieve really fast, quickly, and with style. So in fact, if you do have a dog which finds it less reinforcing to do simple retrieves, you could always offer a greater reinforcer for simple retrieves than for harder retrieves. So you might have, um, I don't know, a tripe stick or something for a really simple retrieve and just some regular treats for a, a, a more difficult retrieve. So if you figure out that your dog finds a basic, simple retrieve less inherently reinforcing than a more complex one, then you might want to take that into consideration when you choose your reinforcers for that behavior. But yeah, I would recommend if you haven't trained the retrieve in the first place using the clicker retrieve that you consider doing that because it will help you sort of break it down and put it back together so that your dog really understands the process. And no matter how sort of simple the exercise is, the dog really wants to get that thing back to you as quickly as possible because they really want what's going to happen after that, which is they get to receive their amazing reinforcer. And that's what it's all about. So in that context, no matter how simple the retrieve is, the dog should be keen and enthusiastic to perform it. So the final thing to say is that it's not very clear from your email, Mike, exactly what the problems are. So you said at the beginning that she seemed disinterested and had lost all her enthusiasm and drive, but you didn't say what actually happened. Did she complete the retrieve, but just very slowly at that point? Um, and then later on, you said that the on her first retrieve... She slowly ambled out, sniffing here and there, going off course, needing much handling. And this was on a simple scene with shot. So presumably she shouldn't really need the handling. So then we would be thinking, well, is this a marking problem? Is it that she hasn't marked where it's come down? So that's that's one question. And then the next one you said she found difficult was a simple split retrieve. She made hard work of it, but you didn't say what that means that she made hard work of it. So are you finding that you have to handle her? Is this a, on team retrieves, is this, a, is this a marking issue? In which case you might need to return and do some marking drills. You might even want to take her to your vet and get her eyes tested or take her to a BVA eye panelist and get her eyes tested to make sure that it's not actually a physical problem because it's always something that we should consider. So I think the thing to say here is that the more details that we have about things that aren't working, the better. And once we have the details about what's not working, then we want to go back to how it was originally trained. We want to isolate the thing that's not working and address that issue. So 
if she is just generally lacking enthusiasm, then I'd be thinking about the reinforcer. And is that sufficient? And has has the exercise, i.e. the retrieve, been broken down into its component parts that she fully understands it and desperately wants to get back to you? But if there are other things going on, like it's a marking problem, so she's not actually seeing where it comes down, then you're having to handle her on marks, then perhaps some marking drills are needed. So you want to, might want to look at the cross drill, which is a marking drill. So I hope that helps and gives you a few things to think about to some degree with Ruby. Hold the line. So that's all for today, everybody. Toodle pip for now and see you soon. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line.